Okay, we'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for 8-10-08. And we're going to be continuing our study on the King James Bible and comparing it to the other versions that are out there. We're going to be talking next about Westcott and Hort, who were the two supposed English scholars who produced the corrupt Greek text of the modern versions. They were the ones that used the Sinaiticus or the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus in order to do this translation, the revised version of 1881. Brooke Foss Westcott, who lived from 1825 to 1901, and Fenton John Anthony Hort, who lived from 1828 to 1892, were the dominating influence on the revision committee of the 1871, from 1871 to 1881. And they account for most of the corruption that we have in today in today's modern translations. The Bible believers should keep in mind several points in, when discussing these two men. The following information is well documented in the final authority by William Grady and many other authors. Together, the life and letters of Brooke Foss Westcott and the life and letters of Fenton John Anthony Hort run over 1,800 pages. Okay, so they, they wrote their own autobiography, evidently. But a personal salvation testimony is not given once for either man in this whole 1,800-page document. And these were the ones that translated the Revised Version of 1881, which spawned all the other, virtually all the other Bibles we have today. You can't even find a personal salvation testimony in 1,800 pages? Must have been really important to them. The Lord Jesus Christ must have been really important to these guys for them not to have even mentioned that in their autobiographies, totally in 1,800 pages. Now, if you were a Christian, turn it around. <laughs> Don't you think that would be the primary thing you would emphasize about your life? You would think. But they weren't Christians. They were occultists. Okay? We're going to prove that. Westcott was a firm believer in Mary worship. And Hort claimed that Mary worship had a lot in common with Jesus worship. So they were, these were like closet Catholics. A closet, occultic, occultist Catholics. Okay. Hort believed in keeping the Roman Catholic sacraments. Wow, this kind of sounds like um, C.S. Lewis, the study we did on C.S. Lewis. Very, very similar. Hort believed in baptismal regeneration as taught in the Catholic Church. Hort rejected the infallibility of Scripture. Oh, sure he did. I mean, look what he did. Look at how he butchered the, the Bible. Hort took great interest in the works of Charles Darwin, while he and Westcott rejected the literal account of creation. Why do you think they loved the fact that the Vaticanus had the first 46 verses removed? <laughs> it served them well. Westcott did not believe in the second coming of Christ, the millennium, or a literal heaven. Both men rejected the doctrine of literal hell. They supported prayers for the dead in purgatory. Again, this sounds so much like C.S. Lewis. Both uh, Hort refused to believe in the Trinity. Hort refused to believe in angels. Westcott confessed that he was a communist by nature. Westcott also did his share of beer drinking. In fact, only 12 years after the revised version of 1881 was published, Westcott was a spokesman for a brewery. It's a good testimony as a Christian, you know. While working on the Greek text of 1851 to 1871, and while working on the revision committee for the revised version, between 1871 and 1881, 
where Scott and Hort were also keeping company with seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, according to 1 Timothy 4.1. Now, these were the same devils that were guiding them in their translation. I mean, it's not like you can separate the two. Both men took great interest in occult practices and clubs. They started the Hermes Club of 1845. Let's talk about the Hermes Club right now. The Hermes Club, the members, um, there was, uh, it looked as though they were four members, according to this particular thing. And Westcott Hort, a guy named A. Sid, Sidwick, and Frederick Myers. Now, the Hermes Club, I'm reading from New Age Bible versions. As a Cambridge undergraduate, Westcott organized a club and chose its name, the Hermes. The designation is derived from the god of magic. The, of occult wisdom and the conductor of souls to Hades, the Lord of Death, cunning and trickery. Wow, you know, hey, so much for fleeing all appearance of evil. You know, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness and rather reproving them. You know, so much for that, so much for setting, you know, not setting any wicked thing before my eyes. We can just throw out all those Bible verses, right? The medieval legend that witches made. The sign of the cross upside down began with the worshippers of Hermes. Hermes, the Trismeter text, were added later to the growing body of semi-secret devilish arts which commanded more and more attention of European intellectuals, of which they were. They were be considered European intellectuals. Hermes became a god within, sought by all religious philosophers of the Gnostic period. Westcott and Hortz... Uh, in her, in her secret doctrine, Luciferian H.P. Blavatsky, who I believe they're also friends with, identifies Hermes as Satan. Satan or Hermes are all one. This is H.P. Blavatsky, the, the highest level witch Luciferian occultist probably the last hundred and you know, thirty years. Started the Theosophical Society. And we've talked about this before. Satan or Hermes are all one. That's what she says. He is called the dragon of wisdom, the serpent, identical with the god of Hermes, inventor of the first initiation of men into magic, the author of serpent worship. Wow, you know, yeah, that's the kind of club I want to start as a Christian. Sure. Again, we're looking at the fruit of these men's lives. Are they fleeing all appearance of evil? Are they improving the unfruitful works of darkness? No, no, rather they are participating in them. They are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In fact, they're openly embracing it. And this is the person I want translating the... My Bible? Well, if you've got an NIV, a New American Standard, a, a, a living translation, a living Bible, New World Translation, these are the guys that have their fingerprints all over the Bible you have to make it real, real to you. Blavatsky's logo was a serpent biting its tail. It represented Hermes. The portrait that history paints of Hermes looks remarkable, remarkably like Westcott. They both succeeded in charming the giant to sleep. They put lies in her mouth. They plunged the Greeks into a slumber with the aid of his magic wand, and with it he made drowsy the eyes of the mortals. That's what these modern translations do. They make you drowsy. They, they, they put you into a slumber. They take away the power of the Holy Spirit. They, they spiritually geld you eventually. And I mean this. I really believe this. Yes, you can have Pentecostals that say they're on fire. I've been there, done that. But they can be sincerely misguided in their zeal. And if they're reading a false version, all the more so. And again, I can say that because I was there. Blavatsky's Theosophical Glossary entry on Hermes 
which interestingly was written by a brother Westcott, who knows, reveals him to be the sacred scribe of the gods. Author of the occult underground cites Hermes as the entry point of scholars and philosophers into the occult. Why do you think they were doing it? They were philosophers and occultists and scholars. Westcott's Hermes Club met weekly for three years from 1845 to 1848, discussing such topics as the funeral ceremonies of the Romans, the elitic school of philosophers, the mythology of Homeric poems, the theremines and numerous undisclosed subjects. Hermes was the original hermaphrodite. The fusion of sexes into one person. A hermaphrodite is somebody that has both male and female sex organs, if you're not aware of that. The priests of Hermes wore artificial breasts and female garments. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And this is who they wanted to associate themselves with, openly, having this club. Even 35 years after his institution of this club, Westcott still presents this New Age concept of androgyny which is always present when you get into the really high-level Babylonian mystery religions. You know, they, they want to present God as both androgynous, male and female. You'll see them uh, presented that way a lot, like when they present Baal and Baphomet, female breasts, male faith, you know, it's just nasty. It's just nasty, and that's what they love to do, pervert things. There are differences between male and female character under which we divine that are the lies a real identity, and consequently tendency to a fusion of the ultimate ideal. This was, that's what, that's Westcott, actually, was a quote from him. Were these young classicists perhaps following Plato's lead in his symposium where he describes homosexual love as the highest kind? One secular historian cites letters between members of Westcott's clubs and refers to the intensity of a homosexual relationship between members the members were Arthur Sedwick and Frederick Myers. I mean, is this sickening? Now, that's who's actually listed as the members of this club. Westcott, Sedwick, and Frederick Myers. Not 100% of Hort, but I'm sure he, he, I'm sure he was very well aware of this, if bare, at bare minimum, if not participating in this. Um, this is a quote from this Hermes Club. The members, Arthur Sedwick, Frederick Myers... Westcott makes a comment, says, I think that homosexuality was not rare among young classicists. Well, that's where the devil will always bring you if you let him take you there. You know, you'll end up being a sodomite. I mean, if you let him just take you to its logical end, the, the two largest abominations, if you look in the Bible, are essentially, where, which always evokes God's greatest judgment, is homosexuality and child sacrifice. Okay. The mummy of Hermes has come to life again, stalking our generation. Today's cryptic metaphysical Bible dictionary notes, the characteristics of man must therefore be masculine and feminine in one. The school of Hermes is today listed as a New Age organization in the English New Age Network magazine. Benjamin Cream, when identifying the New Age Christ, christens him as Hermes, as does Blavatsky. Whoa, who's Benjamin Cream? Well, see all of the studies I've done on Devil Betraya, or as they refer to him as Lord Maitreya. Just 
key in Matreya, M-A-T, M-A-I-T, in, into the keyword search box on my homepage. And you'll find all these teachings on this. And you'll hear all about Benjamin Cream, who's like the Pied Piper to Lord Maitreya, who is a very, very high likely candidate for the Antichrist. And yet they refer to essentially the Christ that's coming, who they refer to as Lord Maitreya, as Hermes, as does Madame Blavatsky. I mean, is, isn't this great? This is, this is the type of clubs that they were... Oh, here, what's another club that... Um, these guys started. Well, one was called the Ghostly Guild. Okay, this is another club that both Westcott and Hort were in this one. It had six members. A. Johnson, Westcott, Hort, Benson, Lightfoot, and H. Sedwig. Westcott and Hort were not only fathers of the Anglican Church, but according to numerous historians and New Age researchers, appear to be among the fathers of the modern channeling movement. Oh, really? Yes, the modern channeling movement. What, you mean like necromancy, like, like that witchcraft practice that's prohibited in the Bible, that in the Old Testament was punishable by death? Yeah, same thing, you know. The Fox sisters, along with H.P. Blavatsky, were the mothers. So, Westcott and Hort could have been the, quote, fathers of the modern-day channeling movement, whereas H.P. Blavatsky and the, quote, Fox sisters were the mothers of the movement. Good company that you want to be in the high, most high-level occultist ever. And these are the guys that translated the revised version of 1881. The group referred to by James Webb as an element in the occult underground was the Ghost Club or the Ghostly Guild launched by Westcott, Horton, ben, Benson in the 1850s. Webb discloses the Ghost Society was founded by no less a person than Edward White Benson, the future Bishop of Canterbury. As A.C. A.C. Benson writes in his father's biography, the archbishop was always more interested in psychic phenomenon than he cared to admit. Two members of the Ghost Guild became bishops Benson and, and, and Westcott and one professor of divinity, Hort. Hort writes of his and Westcott's work to set this apparition association in motion. Westcott, Gorham, C.B., Scott, Benson, Bradshaw, Laud, etc. have started a society for the investigation of ghosts and all supernatural appearances and effects. Being all disposed to believe that such things really exist, Westcott is drawing up a schedule of questions. Now, what they would do is get together and basically have big necromancy parties where they were trying to channel, talk to the dead, and these types of things. All these things forbidden in the Bible. And at the same time, they're translating the ultimate version of 1881, the revised version. You know, is this a superfluous issue we're talking about? Is this, does it matter? I, I, I would say it really matters. I mean, if the word of God's your foundation, and if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? They started out with a corrupt Alexandrian Catholic, two texts, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. And then you have two high-level occultists, devils, unsaved devils, posing as ministers of righteousness, but they were nothing more than ministers of Satan, Wolven sheep's clothing, those were the two guys most responsible for translating this version that spawned essentially all the other versions we have today. I think it is important. Call me crazy. I don't know. In the very same letter, Hort chafes that the Bible, extant in his day as the King James Version from the Greek Texas Receptus, was villainous. That's what uh, Hort referred to the King James Bible as villainous. Like a villain? The letter... This letter is a foghorn sounded by the father, by father time to us today. It testifies as the, the foreboding genesis of today's community of translations like the NIV, the NASV, the New King James, the NRSV, Westcott and Hort's position in the bloodline 
of the current New Age movement is conceded by Hort's son, who says, Hort seems to have been the moving spirit, the, the boogie club, as scoffers called it. In other words, like the boogeyman. They called it the, the Ghostly Guild, the boogie club. It aroused a certain amount of derision and even some alarm. It was apparently born too soon. Oh, they were just before their time. That was all it was. They were just you know men before their time. Authors of the ancient empires of the New Age see this trend without a son's bias, noting once the elite had closed their minds to biblical revelation, they almost immediately began to fall for every spiritual con game and fringe teaching around. It's the truth. I mean, if they're going to fall for this stuff, and they're going to participate in all these ungodly clubs, talking with supposed ghosts and spirits of the dead, if they're going to fall for that, how are they going to be led by God to translate a Bible? It's impossible. They are of their father, the devil, and of his works they will do. See, Westcott and Hort were two of the most mighty tools in the hands of the devil in the last 130, 40 years. They really were. Ultimately, what they do. Proof of that. So we could go on and on and on with this. Uh, they were also involved in a... Uh, or, or at least associated with the Society for Cyclical Research. This society was favorably impressed by um, by Madame Blavatsky. Okay? And the same guys that they associated with in the Hermes Club and the Ghostly Guild were also members of this. Uh, they were in a club called the, Apo- the uh, Arenas Club, which had a guy named Arthur Balfour, Westcott Hort, H. H. Sedwick. All these guys were, you see these names occurring over and over and over again. Another club called the Apostles, where Arthur Balfour, Hort, and Sedwick were in that as well. And the analogy given at the end here is Revelation 16, 13, where they talk about the dragon, which would be likened to a cultist like H. Sedwick, G. Balfour, F. Myers, and the beast, which would be likened to A. Balfour, Prime Minister of England. And the false prophet, Westcott and Hort. So, anyway, we could go down that rabbit trail a lot further. And we're going to continue with this on Westcott and Hort. I just thought that it was kind of important to insert that at that point. To see these are the type of people that translated, ultimately had everything to do with the translations of the modern day versions. The Westcott and Hort Greek text, when it was done, was secretly given to the revision committee. In secret, okay? The members of the Revision Committee of 1881 were sworn to a pledge of secrecy in regard to the new Greek text being used. And they met in silence for ten years. Well, Jesus said, I've done nothing in secret. The word of God is of no private interpretation. Why, did, why do you have to meet in secret like this? Like it's some big cloak and dagger thing. Because they knew what they were doing was evil. They knew that. Deep down, the corrupt Greek text of Westcott and Hort was not released, listen to this dirty trick, was not released to the public until five days before the debut of the revised version of 1881. Five days. This prevented Bible-believing scholars like Dean Burgeon from reviewing it and exposing it for the piece of trash that it was. Does this sound like an honest work of God or a dishonest work of the devil in light of everything that we've talked about? Well, you're the judge and jury. You be, you be the judge and jury on this thing. Now let's talk about the translation of the King James Bible. Let's contrast that. 
Unlike Westcott Hort and the Revised Version Committee, King James went through several great efforts to guard the 1611 translation from heirs. Please note the following. In 1604, King James announced that 54 Hebrew and Greek scholars had been appointed to translate a new Bible for the English-speaking people. The number was reduced to 47 by the time the work formally began in 1607. Rather than working together all at one location, these men were divided into six separate groups, which worked at three separate locations. There were two at Westminster, two at Oxford, and two at Cambridge. Each group was given a selected portion of scripture to translate. Each scholar made his own translation of a book and then passed it on to be reviewed by each member of his group. Remember, out of the mouth of two, of two or three witnesses, a thing is established, and in the multitude of counsel there is wisdom. These are Bible verses, okay? So this is what they were attempting to do. They were attempting to cross-check themselves against other uh, biblical scholars, and, and really you would have to kind of lay down your ego to do this, because it's not like, well, my word goes. Well, it was a big group effort, uh, and, they, and, they, and it was a check and balance system, essentially, a very honest one. The whole group then would go over these books together, once a group had completed a book of the Bible, they sent it to be reviewed by five other groups. All objectionable and questionable translating was marked and noted, and then it was returned to the original group for consideration. How much fairer could they be? A special committee was formed by selecting one leader from each group. The committee worked out all the remaining differences and presented a finished copy for the printers in 1611. This means that the King James Bible had to pass at least 14 examinations before going to press. Throughout this entire process, any learned individuals of the land could be called upon for their judgment, and the churches were kept informed of the progress. Now, does this sound like an honest work of God or a dishonest work of the devil? Contrast that with what we just talked about with Westcott and Hort. There is no comparison here. You know, that's why when you, re, when you really start looking at this, this issue, it's like, wow. I mean, the information and the evidence is so overwhelming. So now let's compare some Bibles. Let's compare the Bibles. In this section, we've repented. Um, it's a track called Let's Compare Bible Track, or Let's Compare Bibles. Here you will see several good examples of how the modern Bible versions are attacking the Word of God. We have selected eight modern-day translations Actually, I'll tell you what, let me just, I'm going to go ahead and read some words that also confirm this, and then we're going to get into that, that next. This is kind of a good segue into that. The Bible says in Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. We've, we've talked about that one. It's just a good one to reiterate. We've talked about Proverbs 13, 13, whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed. But then it says, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. This is very important for, I really believe, not only God hearing and answering your prayers, and if you're going to pray, let's say the Psalms, for instance, if you're reading a corrupt, perverted version, how is God going to honor that prayer properly? Okay. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able, able to the dividing of the soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is the foundation. Okay, we were just talking about this earlier. When I was the radical Pentecostal, zany that I was, I didn't really have this desire urge to memorize scripture. I mean, let's face it, how could I? I had a living Bible, I had an NIV, I had an ASV, I had whatever. All these different versions. Like, I think I had like at least five. 
And that made me feel real proud and puffed up and scholarly. And I could go in there and judge between what stays and what goes. I remember I got so bad that I actually started reinterpreting the Bible. I would like take portions of scripture and look at the versions and say, I think this is what it says. I got that bad. But see, that was the logical conclusion of where, I, where Satan wanted me to end up. And I did get to that point for a very brief period of time. That was like right before I was shown this, thank God. You start to, to play God with God's word. It's a logical thing that will happen. And I really didn't have a whole lot of desire to memorize Scripture. And memorizing Scripture is very important. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And we're going to be talking about these, these, uh, these verses, how important scriptural memorization is. But if you've got, let's say, five different translations for argument's sake, you're not going to really have a big desire to want to memorize them because, number one, it's confusion. And God is not the author of confusion. But you're trying to think, okay, well this version says this, and this version says this, and it all gets jumbled up in your head. And so you have a tendency just to not memorize any scripture at all. I know that's what happened to me, and that's exactly what Satan wants, by throwing out all these verses. Which one's the real word of God? Who knows? But if you have a King James Bible, and that's your authority, you'll have a much higher tendency to want to memorize scripture. Hey, it's only one version you've got to memorize. Okay. That's another thing that's rarely ever brought up. It's very important. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. So if you're quoting scripture, the word will not return void. But what if you're quoting a perversion? 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion. Jeremiah 23, 36 says, Ye have perverted the words of the living God. That's exactly what's going on. Exactly what's going on here. So we're going to segue into a little portion of Scripture that does kind of apply to this particular thing. And we're going to go to Jeremiah 8, verse... We're going to start at verse 5. Jeremiah 8, verse 5. And it says, Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? We're going to find the answer to that. Why... Is the people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backslide? Isn't that where we're at now? Isn't we, aren't we in an absolute perpetual backsliding in the so-called church today? We're going to find the answer. That's going to give us the answer. And then it says they hold fast deceit and refuse to return. So what are they holding on to? The word of God? No. They're holding on to deceit or lies. Father of lies is Satan. And he has a lot to do with these modern day versions. He's the father of lies. There's a lot of lies in these new translations. Then it says, verse 6, I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rusheth into battle. They were, what was the fruit of this perpetual backsliding? Well, they were obeying false doctrine. And then they, and then they were like the whore that it talks about in Proverbs, where it says she takes a piece of essentially stolen bread to her mouth, and she says, what have I done? I've done no wrong. That's how the, that's how the church had, isn't that how the church is now? You confront them with these types of issues and they say, I have done no wrong. Get not now thou near me, for I am holier than thou. I'm going to a big 501c3 church and there's no way we can all be wrong. No way. I give my money to Benny Hinn every month and that's going to building the kingdom of God. No, it's building the kingdom of Benny. And now remember, let's always remember what was in verse 5 here. They're in a perpetual backsliding, but why are they there? There's a question mark after perpetual backsliding, right? 
Why? Well, they hold fast to seat. They refuse to return. They say nobody's repenting of their wickedness, which is exactly the state of the modern-day Laodicean church. Why should they? They don't have a Bible that really has that convicting power. The Holy Spirit's not in it. They say, what have I done? I've done no evil. I'm right with God. I'm a good guy. They turn to their own course. They're self-centered, which is really the root of almost every sin there is. Self. Then it says, verse 7, Yea, the stork in heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of the coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. Oh, isn't that the truth? Oh, we don't want to hear about judgment. No, no way. Uh-uh. God's the big guy in the sky. He's my heavenly bellhop. I get what I want. I'm going to turn, uh, name it and claim it. Say the prayer of Jabez a few times and everything will be just fine. See, Christians today don't believe the Bible and that things are going to get worse leading up into the tribulation. They don't believe that. And that's what's being taught in the churches, right? I mean, they, are they teaching how, things, how horrific things are going to be according to the book of Revelation? The tribulation? No. Oh, no. Uh-uh. That's not tickling ears. That's not giving them vain deceit and philosophy and the traditions of men, making the word of God of none effect. No, 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 no. We don't want that. We want to have our ears tickled. Heap to us having teachers, having itching ears. Preach unto us smooth things. Take away this Holy One, this Jesus. Take away. Now I'm quoting different verses of Scripture, excerpts and bits. Okay, And then it says in verse 8, so this is more fruit. We're looking at the fruit of this perpetual backsliding. And then it says, and again, just think of this today. And then it says in verse 8, How do ye say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly, in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. Huh. Now let's dissect this a little bit more. Hmm. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. Who made he it? The pen of the scribes is in vain. Well, what do scribes do? Could this have to do with the spear of doctrine? Scribes write, right? It's saying that whatever the scribes did, they made it of their own accord. They made it. It wasn't inspired of God. They made it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. I believe this is in reference to their own false doctrine made by the scribes. You did it with a pen. It's doctrine. Obviously, these people are following. It's the reason that they're in a perpetual backsliding. I mean... What else, what other conclusion could I come to? They're observing false doctrine that the pen of the scribes have made. But hold on, isn't that the same thing that Westcott and Hort did? When they had their new translation in 1881 and they had two corrupt versions that that came from, ultimately going back to Alexandria, Egypt, and now flash forwarding forward to all these other false versions? It's the same thing, exact same thing. Verse 9, the wise men are ashamed... They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. Now see, that's how we know that this thing that the scribes made is actually a rejection of the word of the Lord. It's a perversion, most likely. It's their own doctrine, which is what you get with the false versions. They have rejected the word of the Lord. Now, let's go back to verse 5. Why then is the people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? Now, this doesn't just apply to the people of Jerusalem. It applies to anybody that does this exact same thing. 
So why is it? Well, we have our answer in verse 9. We have the clue in verse 8 with the scribes because they made it. But the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken low. They have rejected the word of the Lord. They have used a perverted doctrine or scripture just like they are today. And what wisdom is in them, it says. What wisdom is truly in them? You know, I, I see people still that are in that apostate system. Not to say that I don't have respect for them. Not to say that I don't think that they are... They have a wisdom that they walk in. But the thing is, is it says right here, the wise men are ashamed. The Bible still calls them wise men, but it says they're ashamed. Something to think about. You could still be wise and be in one of these, this mess. They are dismayed and taken. They have rejected the word of the Lord. That's the main reason. That's the main crux of all sin. Rejecting the word of the Lord. And if you've already got a perverted word to boot you're really starting off on a bad foot. And then, okay, so what's the fruit of all this? Fruit of obeying false doctrine. What's the fruit of obeying false doctrine? Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one, of, for every one from the least, even unto the greatest, is given to the covetousness. Is given to covetousness. Isn't that the modern day church? They're given to covetousness. I want what's mine, what's coming to me. From the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. Hey, I'm sorry, but that's what I see in the modern day church. You know, if they were truly working on behalf of God, why aren't they doing what... Not to say I'm like the standard, but this is really foundationally important stuff we're talking about, right? Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they defending the word of God? Why aren't they earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints? Why aren't they doing that? It's not a big deal to them. It's not really a priority. It's going to cut too much into their paycheck. They're not going to be popular. They're not going to be highly esteemed among all men. And have the highest seats in the synagogues. And having their filthy lucre. They can't be a hireling anymore. I'm not saying every one of them are, are, are all evil to the core, okay? I'm just saying that a lot of them are overtaken by this spell and they don't even see it. They could even be considered wise men, but they're going to be ashamed. They're going to be dismayed and taken, the Bible says here. For they have healed, verse 11, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Isn't that what they're doing today in the churches? Oh, bless God, brother. We're going to usher in the kingdom if you're a dominionist. Or if you're a rabid pre-tripper, oh, we're going to basically, we're going to get out of here. We're not going to suffer anything at all, ever. Again, I'm going to go down that, that rabbit trail. I'm just saying, people think that, you know, hey, we're not going to suffer a bit. We're just going to get raptured out of here. When all, we have all these people to look back on, like the martyrs and all the other ones, and Jesus Christ and the apostles, and all these people that paid, you know, with their lives, and I guess we're better than they. This doesn't make a whole lot of biblical sense from that standpoint. Then it says, we, we, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not ashamed, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Well, they had gotten so far away from the word of God, just like today, that they weren't ashamed. There was no real word of God to convict them of their sin anymore. It had been too watered down. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Well, I think this is a, pretty much what's going to happen, particularly to the church in America. And uh, the verse 20, let's go to verse 20 now. 
They have provoked me to anger with their graven images, verse 19, and strange vanities. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. That's the end of this perpetual backsliding. Now, when you look at Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah 14, where it talks about, in the Bible it says, Wherefore, do not pray for this people. What had they done? Repeatedly over and over, where God finally got to a point that said, Don't even pray for these people, because I will not hear your prayer. A perpetual backsliding. They got to the point at that point where they were baking cakes to the Queen of Heaven, they were sacrificing their children, they were doing all these abominations in the house of the Lord, and they said, Are not we delivered to do these things? I believe in Jeremiah 7. We're... We're delivered. We're so holy. We're so good that we're actually delivered to do these abominations in the sight of God. It's just like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says you glory essentially in your shame. That's where we're at. So what's the end of this perpetual backsliding? The question asks, now we know why the perpetual backsliding happened. Because they had rejected the word of the Lord. Okay, so but what's the end of that then? Well, we, we saw some fruit, but then this is the most serious thing. It's one thing, it's one thing, to um, commit these abominations and then to have your wives given unto others and your fields to them that shall inherit them. One thing to have all these things come upon you. But it's another thing when we talk about verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer's ended, and we are not saved. What does that imply? That implies they're going to hell. They're not saved, these people. And then this is the famous verse of the Bible. Where is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Can't be recovered. You'll get to a point in time where God just says, I'm done. Don't even pray for this people. They've continually and continually and continually rejected me. And the core of the rejection was because they rejected the word of God. And if you're reading a perverted Bible, you're already doing that to a certain extent. Okay, so getting back to some of these verses that we were quoting from, let's, uh, Jeremiah 20 verse 9 says, But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. His word. Now, if you've got six different versions, which word's going to be shut up in your bones? Okay, You could have six perverted ones shut up in your bones, but his word, when it's his true word, that's when this really applies. Okay, Because there's a different dynamic that takes place when you're memorizing the true word of God. Now, Jeremiah 23, 29 says, It's not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces. See, the word of God is really our only, our only offensive weapon against Satan. It's the same weapon that Jesus Christ used in the wilderness against Satan after he fasted for 40 days, quoted scripture to him, and um, it's referred to as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So it's a very, very important thing that we're memorizing the right word. Uh, again, Ephesians six seventeen says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, Hebrews four twelve, which we've quoted, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of joint and marrow and as, as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, So we're supposed to study the word of God, but we're also supposed to rightly divide it. And this is something that I see really is lacking in a lot. And this is how a lot of cults get started. They don't rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, look at the Messianic Jewish movement or the Christian Zionists. 
you know, that think we need to be under the Torah and, and, and observing all the feasts, just like the Jew, you know, it's, it's, it's madness. It never ends. Whereas the Bible says Christ is a better covenant. And again, we've covered that in previous teachings. Regarding the people of Berea, in Acts 17, 11, and 12, it says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word. What were they, why were they more noble? Because they received the word, the true word, with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. So what was the fruit of the Bereans searching these things out? Many actually were believed, and belief is, is um, being saved is dependent upon belief, Right? I mean, that's faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So faith is how we get saved. If you have a perverted word, it's much harder to have that faith. So see how this applies to, like, bleeds over into everything about our Christian faith? That's how important this issue is. Psalm... 119 verse 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Proverbs 35, 30, uh, 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now this doesn't mean perverted scripture. This means true scripture, okay? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. See, if you're, if you're operating in the sphere of good doctrine, and that doctrine is going to reprove you of sin, it's going to correct you, as it says here. It's going to give you instruction in righteousness. The end fruit of that is you're going to be furnished unto all good works. doesn't mean you're saved through good works, but good works are going to be a byproduct of you rightly dividing the word of truth and the Holy Spirit living inside you. Simple as that. Second Peter 1.21 For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, so... Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You better make sure the Bible you got is what matches up in heaven. Psalm 119.9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. That's how we cleanse our way. By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. This is talking about scriptural memorization. Uh... Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is like a light. The word of God is a light. Psalm 119, 107. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word. Quicken implies viewing life into us. Quicken me. Make me alive according to thy word. Okay? I think it has part, you know, like being on fire for God, that type of analogy. Psalm Oh, we've already read Psalm 12, 6, and 7. I'll end this with uh, John 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same in the beginning, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. 
And then we go to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Jesus Christ made this world. And the world knew him not. They didn't comprehend. They see, the darkness comprehended it not, for the most part. He came to his own, the Jews, the Israelites, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Well, we know he got rejected, ultimately, corporately. But as many received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Now, in this context, the sons of God are Bible-believing Christians in the New Testament period. This was given in the New Testament time. Sons of God in the Old Testament was only referred to in one way, the five verses that it was used in the Old Testament, and that was to angels. Again, this is rightly dividing the word of truth. Got to see the context of which the verse is used, in other words, in order to discern that. So to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God knows the beginning from the end. Okay? So it says, nor of the will of man. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows he's going to get saved and he's not going to get saved. He knows that. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's how important the word is to Jesus Christ. He equates himself with the word of God. It's, he was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's how important the word of God is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty important. Now, some of the translations that we'll be looking at in these comparisons, uh, we've got the NIV, the NASV, NASB, New American Standard Bible, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, the REB, the Revised English Bible, the LB, the Living Bible, the NWT, the New World Translation, it should be New World Order Translation. I like that better. I don't know. The NAB, the New American Bible, and the NKJV, the New King James Version. Although we have limited the study to eight translations, you will find many of these attacks manifested in many of the new translations, you will find that some of the most important doctrines of the Bible are being t attacked in the new versions. Whether you have a living Bible, a new century version, a revised standard version, or any of the other perversions of scripture, you're going to see the devil hard at work on the revision committees of the new translations. The King James reading will appear first, followed by a brief comment, and then the perverted readings of the modern perversion. So I'm just going to read a few of these. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7. We've already quoted this. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, if you were one of the, these people on this revision committee, you would want to attack this verse. Because it, it, it's too dogmatic about preserving God's word. You would want to like cast a lot of doubt on it, so you could have your copywritten perversion you know, and water everything down. So the above promise from the King James Bible tells us that God intends to preserve his words forever. Notice how the new versions destroy this promise by making you think the context is God's people rather than his words. So, in other words, these new versions say it's not the word he's going to keep, it's God's people. And that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? Well, the NIV says, you will keep us safe. In other words, we're talking about the words of God. In the King James. But in the NIV it says, you will keep us safe. That's pretty different, okay? The NASB says, thou will preserve him. Not the words, but a person. And then the NRSV says, you, O Lord, will protect us. 
the REB says, you are our protector. But see, it sounds fine, I mean, if you're reading this, but if you don't know what the real version says, yeah, I mean, it's nice, God's our protector, the, he's a shield and a, a buckler and a, for those who put their trust in him, but it's not, the, it's not what this verse was saying, okay? We're totally perverting what this verse is saying. But they're hoping that you're never going to check into this, so you'll never know the difference. That's what Satan is banking on. The Living Bible says, you will forever preserve your own. The NAB says, you, O Lord, will keep us. I mean, this is totally different. They're, we're talking about the Word of God here, and they're talking about people. Well, what does Isaiah 7.14 says? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This is KJV. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Notice how some of the new versions attack the virgin birth of Christ by robbing Mary of her virginity. As anyone well knows, a young woman or a maiden is not necessarily a virgin. The NRSV says, instead of virgin, it says young woman. REB says young woman. NWT says maiden. So again, we're, we're attacking the virginity of Mary, okay, which is a big issue. Luke 2.33, listen to this one. This is KJV. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Now, this is in reference to Christ. Here the new virgins attack the virgin birth by telling us that Joseph was Christ's father. Well, how does it do that? Well, because in the KJV it says, and Joseph and his mother. It doesn't say, and Jesus' father and his mother marveled at those things. It says Joseph. Joseph wasn't Jesus' real father. Okay, The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. The Immaculate Conception happened. And I know that I don't really like that term because it's like Catholic sounding, but you know, it, it was that. I mean, just don't think I'm turning Catholic on you. The NIV says, instead of Joseph, it says the child's father, Jesus' father. Is this sick or what? The NASB says his father. The NRSV says the child's father. The REB says the child's father. The NWT says its father. Its father. That's even better. Its. Referring to Jesus as it. The NAB says the child's father. Now, is this some little superfluous issue that we're talking about? This is one little thing. The NIV has removed 64,098 words in comparison to the KJV. This is one little thing we're talking about here. No, I really don't want to mess around with this stuff. I, 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 you know, you mess around with this and you go to the end of Revelation. You, you see the warnings about taking. You see that whoso despises the word, the same shall be destroyed. In Proverbs 13, 13. Why, why do we want to mess around with this stuff? This is serious stuff we're talking about here. Well, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. As God was manifest in the flesh. Notice how the King James is very clear, telling us on who was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Now watch the new perversions throw, a clear, throw God clear out of the verse. The NIV says, he appeared in a body. He appeared. That's a lot different than God. NASB says, he who was revealed in the flesh. NRSV, he was revealed in the flesh. REB, he was manifested in the flesh. Living Bible, who came to earth as a man. NWT, he was made manifest in the flesh. You know, we've just thrown the word God out the door. Okay. Micah 5.2 But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the verse tells us that he had no beginning as the second member of the Trinity. He is eternal, or from everlasting to everlasting, but not what most modern translations say. Because they say, the NIV says, from ancient times. Instead of from everlasting, it says from ancient times. That would imply he had a beginning. The NRSV says from ancient times. The RAB says in ancient times. The NWT from the days of time indefinite. The NAB from ancient times. Yeah, it is. That's what we're dealing with. Babylonian mystery religions. Isaiah 14.12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Revelation 22.16 tells us that Jesus Christ is the morning star. This is a, this is a good one. The King James Bible never gives this title to anyone else. However, in some new versions, Jesus Christ and Satan are the same. Because some versions have taken the liberty to call Satan the morning star. In Isaiah 14.12. Although some versions do not go so far as to call Satan the morning star, they still throw out the name Lucifer. Okay, so, Revelation 22.16 says that Jesus is the bright morning star. Okay? The King James Bible never gives this title to anyone else. Okay? However... These, some of these new versions, you would be confused that Jesus Christ and Satan are one. Okay, Because we go to Isaiah 14.12 in the NIV, and instead of it saying um, <clears throat> Lucifer, son of the morning, it just says morning star. Well, if you have an NIV reference Bible, it'll take you to the other reference in the Revelation where it talks about the bright and morning star, which is Jesus Christ. You think they're the same ones. Isaiah 14 is like the biography of Lucifer. Okay, so you could easily get confused that Satan and Jesus Christ are the same ones. The NASB says the star of the morning instead of, um, <clears throat> instead of O Lucifer, son of the morning. The NRSB says day star, which is another term for Jesus. The REB says bright and morning star. Uh, NWT, you shiny one, NAB, morning star. So... Anyway, that is some of the, the, the verses. We're going to go ahead and continue our next part into next week, and we'll finish up next week with the, uh, with the rest of this teaching. And I'm going to go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer from here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, and all your goodness and your mercy, Lord, that you've bestowed upon us. And Lord, we just pray that your word will not return void, and that, Lord God, the truth that you have set forth, wherever your word is being preached worldwide, Lord God, would be honored. And, Lord God, you'd use it mightily for your glory and that many would be saved as a result of it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.